So, before I read God's word, I'm actually going to start with a little historical context. Uh, you might be seeing a pattern. I've only preached here three times, but I have a tendency to do this. Um, so, this passage that we're about to read, John 7, 1 through 31, occurs during a festival called the Feast of Booths. Now, this was a seven-day feast. They kind of cheated here. It's a seven-day feast, but it actually ends on the eighth day, so it's really kind of an eight-day feast. It's a seven-day feast that begins on the first day with solemn rest and ends on the eighth day with solemn rest. And this feast took place at the end of the grape and the olive and the fruit harvest, and it would include a sacrifice of 13 bulls. It's a lot of meat. And the people would all set up tents or booths and live with them during those seven, eight days. And it was one of the most joyous feasts of the people of God. And it was instituted as a tribute to remind the people of God how their Lord had freed them from their captors in Egypt. And how he had brought them through the wilderness to their land. Now, because the feast was instituted in remembrance of the freedom that God purchased for his people at the time of the Exodus and his faithfulness to them, it also became, at the time of our reading here at John 7, 1 through 31, it became a feast where people hoped to be rescued from the power of the Romans. (laughs) They're under the authority of the political power of the Romans, and they want a Messiah. They want a king to come and free them from their political, to the political tyranny of the Romans. And they're not really eagerly awaiting someone to save them from their sins. They feel like they have that in the temple. And so it's here, in light of this feast that's occurring that we have this strange mix of emotions. It's in the joy of the festival where you're camping with all of these people and eating good food and drinking good wine, tainted by the sorrow of their cultural oppression under the Romans, and with the tentative hopes of a Messiah who would come, not to save them from their sins, but save them from their oppressors, that our text occurs. And it's in this context that people are plagued with questions about who this guy who's just arrived on the scene is, who this Jesus fellow is. And in this passage, we're actually going to see there's five different ways that people view Jesus. Is Jesus just a guy who's seeking fame? Is Jesus just a good person? Is he likable? Is that it? Is Jesus a liar? (laughs) Leading people astray? Is he a lunatic? Or is Jesus our Lord? Let's look at the text and read together. We're going to read John 7, 1 through 31. This is the word of our Lord. After this... Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 
Now the Jews' feast of booths, that we just talked about, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, oh, he's a, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks only his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? (laughs) The crowd answered. I love this. The crowd. The whole group. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. You do a work on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath... I made a whole man's a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, "Is not this the man whom they seek to kill?" And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But uh, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus, still being in the temple, proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him 
you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. Father, your word is mysterious and strange and beautiful and wonderful. I pray this morning that you would not allow any of us, having sat in the hearing of your word, to leave unchanged. Would you grow us in confidence of what you have done, in confidence of who you are, and would you help us to live in light of these things? Thank you, Lord, that in your Bible, you have decided to leave in very strange things that are hard to understand. Would you enliven our hearts? Would you open our eyes and our ears to see your truth in this text? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, those of you who can see the sermon title. It's the five deadly L's. Now, I have um, very intentionally avoided alliterations historically because I always think anytime I hear somebody's alliteration, there's a better word, and you just chose that word because it starts with the same letter as the other ones. Well, this morning, I'm, uh, you know, eating my own hat, so to speak, and Um, And we have five L's that we're going to use to outline uh, this text today. And I think that all of them, with the exception of one, one of the L's, the first one is actually a little weak, uh, actually speak to our text today. So I'm I'm sure that many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis's uh, three categories for Jesus as a liar, a lunatic, or our Lord. However, as I've reflected on this text, I've actually realized that there are two additional categories. Um, They're passive categories for the ways that people sometimes look at Jesus. And we're going to use those to outline our text. So this morning, that's going to be what we follow. And it's going to be five parts of, for those of you who like taking notes, I see a few pens, some phones. You can write these down if you want. First point is this, is Jesus just a lionized figure? Lionized? That's the weak one, by the way, if you're wondering. Second, is Jesus just likable? Third, is Jesus a liar? Fourth, is Jesus a lunatic? Or fifth, Is Jesus our Lord? Let's start with the first one. Now, I had four L's and I was looking for a fifth. And I asked a friend of mine when we were having dinner together, I said, hey, can you think of any words that start with the letter L that means something like seeking fame or a spotlight? He's like, oh yeah, lionize. And it was a new term for me. Um, And... 
By lionized, what I mean is a person who receives a lot of public attention and approval. It was a new term for me, like I said. But is that actually a fitting description of Jesus? So we're going to start by reading verses 3 through 5 to take a look at the way Jesus' brothers see him. And we're going to consider his response. Verses 3 through 5 say this, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, note the if there, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believes in him. Now this section, if you read through commentaries, um, there is a unanimous agreement that there's a very similar pattern to these words and what happens when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Some of you may recall that Satan says to him, throw yourself from the temple to be made known publicly. Watch the angels come and hold you and bring you down and then you're going to establish for yourself a kingdom. Everyone will see you as this famous person. And that's kind of what Jesus' brothers are inviting him to do. The word that they use actually for being known publicly is parousia, And it can also be translated as a public figure. Jesus is invited by his brothers to do exactly what Satan invited him to do. To take for himself on his own accord and in his own timing, a kingdom. But that is not how Jesus works. He refuses to just be a lionized public figure. So Jesus, in response to his brothers, in verse 6 through 9, rejects the invitation and says this. Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he stayed in Galilee. If Jesus' goal is to draw crowds to himself and become famous and loved, then I want to say he actually did a really poor job. (laughs) He should have taken his brother's advice. He should have gone up with this crowd of people who would have been traveling to the feast together. And he could have drawn people to him with his own charisma throughout the time, maybe worked a few more miracles. But instead, what he does is he tells his brothers that his teachings say the world is evil. That doesn't really draw a crowd. Jesus is not intending just to draw a crowd. He is intending to do the will of the Father. And so he does that. He still goes up to the Feast of Booths, if you notice, in verse 10. But he will not do it to become a public figure. His brothers see Jesus as an Ariana Grande, or a Kanye West, or a Miley Cyrus, But he's not interested in fame or Twitter followers. (laughs) He is the Messiah 
And he will establish his kingdom in an unprecedented way through his death on a Roman crucifix. His kingdom is upside down. We can look at the pre-conversion brothers as a negative model. His brothers are fence-sitters. They don't reject him outright, but also they do not believe that he's the Christ. They have lionized him, and that is all. So too for us, there's no room to be lukewarm towards Jesus. Either he's king, or he isn't. We can submit to his rulership in our lives, or we can reject him. But to sit passively without conviction as his brothers did, and see him merely as a public figure like Gandhi or Immanuel Kant or Darwin or Martin Luther is not a valid option. It's passive. And it doesn't actually consider Jesus' claims. But Jesus isn't just viewed as a lionized figure in this text. Furthermore, if we go down to verses 11 through 12, we see some other interesting claims about him. So our second point, is Jesus just likable? Is he just a good guy? So let's look at verses 11 through 12. They say this, The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. What does it mean at the time to be a good man? In our cultural context, a good man is actually, you know, not that hard to achieve. You pay your taxes, you don't speed, you're kind to your wife and your kids or your peers, you act in wisdom. For the Jews, what it meant to be a good man, we can look to Proverbs. It says things like this. It says, a good man obtains favor from the Lord. But an evil man devices, uh, a man of evil devices, he condemns. It also says this a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. <laughs> or it says this the black backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. So some of the people present knew enough about Jesus and his miracles and his teachings to say, oh, he's a good man. But actually to say something about Jesus like that, like, oh, he's a good man, he acts in wisdom, he's probably kind to people sometimes, <laughs> probably obeys the laws that are there for him, falls so short of who Jesus is, it is so partial that it actually misses him completely. At first glance, the statement, he's a good man, doesn't actually sound that bad. But we can, when we consider his claims and take him seriously, we can't think of him merely as a likable person. In fact, sometimes Jesus is very unlikable. <laughs> he says things like this to Nicodemus, a leading Jewish teacher at the time. He says... Whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because he has not believed in the Son of God. 
The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you had somebody talking like that to you all the time, you probably wouldn't want to be their friend. You might not say, yeah, let's go out to the pub together. I'd love to have a conversation. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he bluntly says, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Jesus speaks the truth in love, but not in a way that just sounds likable. (laughs) Because it's not. Or even his comment to his brothers that we read earlier is backhanded. He says to his brothers, the world cannot hate you. He's implying that they are of the world. But it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. To think about Jesus as merely a good man is not to have thought deeply on his teachings at all. His brothers and this group in the crowd have a passive approach to Jesus. They didn't take him seriously. Now, sadly, actually, it's interesting because this view on Jesus is probably the most common interpretation of him now. Most people do think of Jesus as a Gandhi or a Plato or an Aristotle or a Nelson Mandela, a good guy who taught interesting things that everyone can learn from. But this is actually a very shallow understanding of what he teaches and of who he is. Jesus makes exclusive truth claims about himself that differentiate himself and Christianity from all other religions. And oftentimes, he does so in a way that is flat out unlikable. (laughs) So is Jesus a lionized figure? Unlikely. Is Jesus just a likable guy? Probably not. Those are passive interpretations of who he is. Third, let's turn to the question, is Jesus a liar? Now this is the claim leveled by the group in verse 12. We already read this part. Um, This group is of a more critical disposition. They must be taking Jesus' teaching seriously enough at least to recognize the differences between his claims and the claims of other Jewish Jewish teachers at the time. After all, Jesus makes some radical claims about himself and his teachings. So let's look at verses 14 through 18 in considering whether or not Jesus is a liar. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
Jesus claims that his teaching is actually from the Father, and he claims that only those who know God's will will accept his teachings as authoritative. Authoritative. He, cl- his cl- he claims to only seek the glory of God. Now, because there's so much on the line with his statements, I think it's actually a very fair question to ask whether or not Jesus is a liar. One popular narrative that you may have heard some form of in our cultural context that paints Jesus as a liar goes something like this. Jesus, now this is not what I'm promoting, this is something that people will sometimes say about him. Jesus was a confused ancient Near Eastern person of interest who was told from a young age that he was to be the Messiah. And he so internalized these claims that he lied to make his adulterous mother's dreams come true. And in this narrative, Jesus, along with every other exclusive radical teaching, is just a guy who is misled and thus lied and led others astray. Have any of you guys heard that? You can raise your hands if you have. It's okay. Maybe not. That's okay. Well, I've heard it, so I'm putting it in here. Anyways, I think in this passage, there are actually two very interesting indicators that that narrative about Jesus doesn't hold water. The first is observed in verse 15, where it says this, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it? That this man has learning when he has never studied. Now, the interesting thing about this is that these Jews were likely educated. Educated enough to recognize that he wasn't teaching in the way that their education taught them to teach. And if you're well educated in something, it's actually very easy to say and recognize who is an expert in a field And who isn't? Who has a right to talk about the topic that they're talking about? So one sociologist I like, Jonathan Haidt, I have a lot of respect for him. But if he starts talking in a field that doesn't have to do with sociology or his studies, I can recognize he's speaking outside of his area of expertise. Here in verse 15, these Jews, these experts in their field, are looking to Jesus and they're saying, my goodness, This man does not have the formal education that we had. How does he teach like this? How does he know the scriptures in the way that he knows? They recognize that Jesus is not merely a wordsmith salesman who wants to make a worldview to radicalize the world. They were experts in the field and they respected his teachings. The second indicator that that I think shows us that Jesus is not just a liar, is is this. Jesus didn't just teach with knowledge and eloquence. He also worked miracles that were witnessed by hundreds of people. Now, in the Greco-Roman period, eyewitness account by multiple people was the equivalent of what we might do in showing a video of a historical event that happened. His miracles, further, were so well known 
that in the temple, in the temple, he talks about them and they, no one approaches his teachings with skepticism. Note that in this passage, no one questions that he healed a paralytic in John 5, which is the miracle that he's referring to. Now, for someone to develop an elaborate, cohesive teaching as a lie is one thing. But for their entire lives to be accompanied by miracles, witnessed by hundreds of people, to the extent that they can teach on them in front of people and no one questions it, is another. I personally find it unlikely that Jesus was a liar. But let's continue onward to the fourth question. Was Jesus a lunatic? <laughs> Look with me to verse 20. It says this. The crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? The irony of their claim is made very clear later in the narrative of Jesus' life. So for that reason, instead of talking a bunch, I'm just going to read from Mark 14, 43 through 50, and Mark 15, 33 through 37. The Gospel of Mark says this, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him. And they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and they struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, just like our passage. And you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him, and they fled. Mark fifteen thirty three through 37. Jesus is on the cross here. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani! which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. (laughs) And someone ran, they filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on a reed, and they gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And he breathed his last.
If Jesus was a lunatic, how is it that his teachings have all come to pass? (laughs) Why was he trusted by his closest friends? I worked at the Lighthouse Mission as a case manager, the homeless shelter in downtown Bellingham. I know many lunatics. I would not trust them with my life. Why would this world be changed by this one man who was born in Bethlehem and grew up in nowhere Nazareth and died on a common cross? His followers all say they saw him rise again from the dead. The people attested to his miracles. And this leads us to the last way that Jesus is viewed by the people in the Gospel of John. And that leads us to our fifth point. Is Jesus the Christ? I need to say something funny, otherwise I'm going to start crying. I remember as a kid thinking that Christ was Jesus' last name. (laughs) Maybe there's someone here who thinks that. But uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Rather, Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. Just as Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. The hopes for a Savior that I mentioned in the introduction, the hopes that the people had at the Feast of Booths, these messianic expectations, they were for the king who would come and establish an everlasting rule. The people of Jerusalem in verses 25 through 31 are very cautiously wondering if this Jesus fellow is actually the Christ. So let's read again, verses 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Could it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I've come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Further, in verse 31, it says, Yet many of the people believed him, and they said, When the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? Is Jesus the Christ? I think it is the most important question we could possibly ask. Now, this is, I think, a good time for me to read what C.S. Lewis says about the liar-lunatic-lord argument. He says this. He says... I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Some people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now that is one thing we must not say. 
a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. (laughs) He would either be a lunatic, I love this line, on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, (laughs) or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is my stance, and this is the stance of many of you in this room. Now, I'm sure that you've noticed that this alliteration, these five L's that have outlined this text today, are the deadly L's, the five deadly L's. And you might be thinking, well, aren't there only four deadly L's? I don't think that there are. To consider Jesus as the Christ includes a loss for us. We may lose our friends. We may lose our brothers or sisters. We may lose our father or mother. We may lose our positions, our pride, or our esteem. We are so much like the people at the Feast of Booths. We can come to Jesus with unchecked expectations. And sometimes in our expectations, we don't actually allow Jesus to be who he is. We want an American president, Jesus. We want a tolerant Jesus. We want a eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus who don't even know a word yet. Talladega Nights, anyways. We want a Jesus who makes me look good and feel good about myself all the time. We want an antidepressant Jesus. Oftentimes we want Jesus to be the little idol on the shelf who does what we want. But if he is who he says he is, then we must be willing to recognize that we actually don't have as much to lose as we thought. But we have everything to gain. Let's consider these things throughout this week. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you saw it right to condescend to come down to us, to put on flesh, to become a human, to allow yourself to be viewed as a lunatic or a liar, to allow yourself to be viewed as someone who's seeking the spotlight, to allow yourself to be viewed as just a good guy. We thank you that you love us so much that you endured this condescension that you endured the cross. 
And we pray that you would help us to be a people who live in light of who you are and what you have done. Help us to consider these things throughout this week. Would you help us to represent you well? It's in your name we pray. Amen.